Good morning, everyone. Happy Wednesday to you. Glad to see you all here this morning. I hope that you have picked up a schedule, a little bookmark schedule on your way in. And as a reminder, if you have not received an email about this class, just a reminder email, then make sure you sign up on the clipboards at all the doors so we can put you on our email list. Just in case something happens or changes last minute, we want to make sure that you know as soon as possible. This schedule is something you can put right in your Bible. It tells you when we are and are not meeting and on each of the dates which chapters we are reading. And as I noted last week, this is the first year, this is the third year we've been doing this, which is great. And this is the first year where we don't have a one chapter per week kind of schedule because Genesis just has way more chapters than we have weeks in the school year. So do take one of these, note which chapters we're reading at any given week. And some weeks we'll have a few, some will just have one, and you'll know based on this schedule. I also want to note two more things. First off, last week, I had a lot of people say how much they enjoyed just meeting some new people. And so I will encourage you once again to earmark a few minutes after class is over, look around you and introduce yourself to someone you don't know. This is particularly great opportunity for you to introduce yourself to the person that you've known for years but can't remember their name, because I'm asking you to. So. I get blamed. So you just introduce yourself to somebody. And if you have a name tag, please do wear your name tag at this class because we have many guests who are not members of St. Michael. So to those guests who are not members of St. Michael, we would love for you to be. And one easy way to start is by getting a name tag yourself. You are very welcome to get a name tag at the receptionist desk on your way out if you would like to wear one on Wednesdays, even if you choose to go somewhere else on Sundays. Nobody's perfect. It's all right. <laughs> we would still love for you to put a name tag on while you are here on Wednesdays so that you are very welcome here anytime. Lastly, there are communication cards, they look like this, in the pew backs in front of you. If you don't have them, then tell me because they're supposed to be stocked every week. There are communication cards, should be, in the pew back in front of you. These are great ways for you to submit questions to me. I know some people are confident to just ask a question in the middle of class, which is great. Others are not, and they would rather be a little more quiet um, or perhaps you just need a week to think about what question you want to ask. These are great ways for you to submit questions to me. I got one last week, which I'm going to talk about. And this helps me to know what is not as clear as I want it to be so that I can reiterate something or perhaps say it in a different way to help us all kind of move forward together. So... I think that's all I have as housekeeping. Let's jump in. So last week, so first off, I just want to say I love Genesis. I don't know if I said this last week. I'm so excited about this class. Genesis is my favorite book in the entire Bible. Genesis is, am I talking too fast? Sorry, okay. Oh, you can't believe it's my favorite book? It's because you haven't studied it with me yet. You're going to love it. So it is 
super. It is so dense and rich and thick and narrative and it's wonderful. And so I'm, I'm really excited. I got more excited this week as we were actually going into chapter one. So do read Genesis before you come, read it again. This is one of those easy books that with very few exceptions in the it is totally narrative and a pleasure to go through the whole thing. And so I hope that you are reading in advance. Um, last week we talked about a few different Bible translations just to reiterate the NRSV. That is the one we use here. You are welcome to bring any that you want. Um, NIV is a good one. Many people told me they use the Living Bible. It is fine. Just make sure you have a translation. We also talked about paraphrases. And paraphrases are the ones that are not translations. They are trying to help us understand what's really going on behind the language. And so a good paraphrase would be the message. And a paraphrase is one of those books, if you don't have one, you may actually like to have one in your library because there are moments when we read through the Bible and it just doesn't make any sense. Some nice, thoughtful, smart person has tried to figure out what it is really saying and then written that out as a paraphrase rather than a translation. Those are great things to have at home. So I encourage you to get some of those things. We also talked about the exile, and that is the question I received after last week. The exile is the moment in Jewish history where the Jewish people are taken into both Assyria and Babylon, away from Israel. This happens after the captivity in Egypt, after Moses and Joshua have brought them into the promised land. This happens after the kingdom period. So Saul, David, Solomon, all the kings are behind them. And then they get taken into exile. The exile is a critically important time in the history of the Jewish people because it's the moment when the Jews ask the big question, well, is God really the strongest God? Is God real? And if God is the strongest God, then what did we do for God to leave us? That's the big question that they ask. They decide God is real, God is the best, go God. And then they decide that they must have done something wrong so that God left them, stopped protecting them and allowed these other other groups of people, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to come and sack their empire. So then they begin to figure out how they got to where they got in the exile and what they need to do afterwards so that this doesn't happen again. So they begin to tell the stories that they had been telling orally and refining those stories in order to explain how this all happened. Then they wrote them down. That is where we get pretty much the entire Old Testament. In this moment in the exile, they are trying to explain how they could have lost the promised land. And that is why they tell the stories the way they do. One of the questions is that I received last week about the exile is, is the exile the same as the Exodus? Which is a good question, and the answer is no. In the history of the Jewish people, you get sort of the, the early big epic stories, which is what we're gonna be talking about in the first part of Genesis, the creation and the flood and that sort of stuff. Then you get the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then they are in Egypt where they are in captivity and you get Moses taking them out of Egypt. That's the Exodus. After the Exodus, Joshua takes them into the promised land. They go through the period of judges, the period of kings, and then the exile. So you're talking about centuries and centuries 
separating the exodus and the exile. Does that make sense? We'll talk more. There are some major touchstone moments in the history of Judaism. The, the one that follows, you know, the exodus forms the Jewish people. Before that, they were just a Semitic group of people. But the exodus is the crucible in which Judaism is formed. Then the exile refreshes Judaism in a significant way and changes it for good. Then you get the diaspora. Don't even worry about it. I'm just saying. There's another moment when all the Jews are sent all over the world, and that happens after Jesus' death resurrection because Jesus lived in a period of time when the Jewish people were rebelling against Rome. Jesus happened to be a form of rebellion. But there were other Jewish leaders rebelling in a very different way, and some of them aggressively and physically fighting. Those Jewish people ended up annoying Rome enough to where Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem in 70. And at that point, the Jews were sort of dispersed all over the Roman Empire and created little communities in both North Africa and in Eastern and Central Europe. Fast forward to the 20th century, and the reason the Holocaust could even happen is because the Jewish people were so separated from one another in these different countries and national identities. So we can talk about that another time. But just to know, the exile is one of the three big moments that define what it means to be a Jewish person. And I think that answered that question. Oh, there was one more down here, the Tanakh, which we talked about last week. Tanakh is the three parts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. The Tanakh was written during the exile or directly after as a way of telling the story of how they got there. I kind of said that, but I want to make sure I said that again. Any questions about last week to just clarify? Oh, hey, my friend. What's your question? I didn't actually say that. Yes. Okay. So good question because that's not exactly what I meant. So <clears throat> the Jewish people worshiped one God, Yahweh, but they did not understand that there was only one God. They had one, but everyone else had something else. So the Babylonians had gods, and the Assyrians had gods, and the on and on and on. Everyone had a set of gods. So they believed that all those gods existed. Yahweh was the best. Yahweh was the guy. I mean, he was the god. And what we will see in the creation narrative in Genesis 1 is they subtly but clearly make that distinction very very prominent in the way they tell this creation story. God is the best God, Yahweh. We don't, so monotheism as an idea exists in at least two different phases. The first phase, which is most of human history, is once monotheism becomes an idea with the Jewish people, the Jews say there's only one God, Yahweh, but they don't discount that other gods exist, but they don't care. I mean, there is this sense that there's a divine 
heavens up there in some way, but Yahweh's the number one. Modern times, it's a little different, but not all the way different. We would almost certainly like to say, if we are being thoughtful, that there's only one God, period. But how often do we hear people talk about whether we worship the same God as the Jews or the Muslims or the Hindu or however, right? People ask this question, do you worship the same God? When we've done interfaith panels here, that's the number one question we get. Do we worship the same God? And what I really want to say is there is only one. Now, you can call God whatever, but it doesn't mean that there are others. There's just God. If you have any sort of problem with that, or if you know other people who have problems with that, then what they are implicitly understanding is that there are multiple gods, and others pray to these different gods, not our God. Mm, that's, that's not how that works. And that is a more modern construct than what the Jews would have understood years ago. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. All right, we have a lot to do, let's jump in. Stop me if you have questions, but make it a good one. So, we've got three, you know, do you remember when they used to say there are no dumb questions? I'm not so sure. Okay, so, Genesis chapter one. <laughs> we've got three sections. The first section is the beginning. And that's a good place to start. Second section is creation. And the third for the lesson, even though it's not in the chapter, is Babylonian influences. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Remember, the Jews are in exile. I want to say that we do not know what we do not know. That is a very important idea as we begin to unpack scripture. All right, so let me say it again. We don't know what we don't know. So what I'm asking you to do, inviting you to do, is to read the scriptures for what is actually there. We have all, in some form or fashion, received these stories. Some of us may not have grown up in a church, and so we received these stories kind of within culture. Many of us, probably most of us, grew up in a church and were taught these stories before we could read them ourselves. Perhaps we were taught these stories over and over and over again, and we were way into adulthood before we actually ever read these stories themselves. There are certainly people sitting in this chapel who actually read the first chapter of Genesis in the last few days for the very first time in their life. That is okay. But what I want us to do is only read what is there, okay? We don't know what they don't say. So let's try and really unpack just what is said. That's going to be the theme throughout all of this first section of Genesis. When we talk about these epic stories, don't bring in what your Sunday school teacher told you, all right? They are sweet. I am certain your Sunday school teachers were so sweet. But let's actually do a Bible study, okay? All right, 
Verse one. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. All right, that's what we're gonna look at in the first section. (laughs) In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. It is obvious that Genesis is starting from the moment of creation. In the Jewish translation, in the Jewish translation into English, the way that they translate this opening is, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. All right, remember this is written in Hebrew, not English. And so nothing we do in English is going to be quite accurate enough for us to get its implication in Hebrew. So we're gonna try a few times as we go out throughout this year to look at how different people may translate certain phrases. So in the NRSV, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, in the Jewish scriptures, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. So we are talking about creation. We are not talking about what? The beginning of time, okay? Now, we could spend hours and hours debating what would be a scientific understanding of the world, a creationist perspective of the world, and on and on and on. Let me put that aside and simplify it for you. The people who wrote this were not talking about the beginning of time. Full stop. They were talking about when God created. That's it. So if you've got friends or you who hold what would be termed today as a creationist understanding of the world, that God literally began everything and it created in six days and the world's only been around for six or so thousand years, that is born out of what I would argue is a misreading of Genesis. All that is here, remember, we don't know, we don't know. All that is here is God created everything. That's it. Does not say anything else. So we're going to go from there. God created everything. Creation in the Bible is solely the prerogative of God. God creates. No one else creates in Scripture. We do not know if the ancient Jewish people understood creativity like we do in the sense that we might create a painting or create a sculpture or create a piece of music or create that stuff. Instead, the ancient peoples understood God is who creates. So the only time we see this word create or creation has to do with God doing a thing. And that does not happen in scriptures except in exceptional moments. God's creativity is extraordinary. It does not happen all the time. We have a perfectly fine modern sensibility that God is constantly in creation, right? Every bird, every bunny, every flower, every rainbow, whatever, that God is actively engaged in creating all this stuff. That's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But I do want us to acknowledge that in scripture, the only time God creates is in extraordinary moments, not every little thing all the time. 
Any questions about that before we move on to the actual days of creation? And I acknowledge that when I say something to you like the whole, how did time begin? It's not like you can just say, okay, great. If you want to think about that and ask questions, that's what I want this to be. Um, if, if you get to know me better, you know I don't need anyone to agree with me, but I do want you to know what I think. And if I can explain what I think and how I got to what I think, I'm happy to. And if you disagree with me, no problem. Because the bottom line is none of us really know. We're just all trying our best. So if there's a question you have about things like, what did God really do in that first moment? What existed before creation? I mean, all we know is that apparently God did because God was there and then God created. That's all we get. And so before anything happened, before anything existed, God was there. And that's why we get in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We get this idea that God has always been. And what we see and know was at some point made. That's what we get in the beginning of Genesis. All right, any questions or comments? Stunned silence. All right. Someone's in here is thinking, how heretical am I really? Okay, let's go with creation. We are going to unpack creation visually. So day one, let's look at verse two. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day and the darkness night. That is the first day. Darkness is scary, right? I mean, kids are afraid of the dark. I know adults that are afraid of the dark. I know that when we do things like lose power for extended periods of time, there's this mild discomfort because there are no street lights, there are no house lights, and you might have a flashlight that's just never quite good enough, and you light enough candles in the house that you don't feel like you're gonna burn the house down, but you need more light around the corners of the house because you just don't like being in the dark. Darkness is is tangibly scary, and the idea of the unknown is most scary. When was this written? When the Jews were in exile. They did not know what was going to happen to them. So although they are writing this as a literal darkness, they are meaning a figurative darkness as well. They are in a dark place in exile. And what happens when darkness exists? God comes in and brings light. So yes, they probably understand that there was a dark void at some point and God brought in light, literally. But this is also meant to begin to plant the seeds of hope for what will happen to the Jewish people after the exile. That they may be in a dark place now, but when God encounters darkness, God brings light. The other thing I want to note about this, these couple verses 
is the idea of the wind of God. God's wind will sometimes be referred to as God's breath. There is an active engagement of God in the creation. We do get the sense in this first creation story that God's sort of like poof, light, poof, land, poof, but there is still a bit more physicality in the creation. And we get that hint of physicality in this first creation story through the idea of this wind, of God's physical presence among the creation. The second creation story that we'll get to next week makes that more explicit. God literally takes the wind and the breath and blows into humanity. We don't get that in the first creation story, but the wind is still present. I also wanna note, we get in the language of these days, evening and morning, it was evening, it was morning the first day. It was evening, it was morning the second day. If we're being quite astute, we may wonder why evening and morning. I mean, it just seems like it would be morning and evening, right? That's kind of how we operate. This leans into a lunar understanding of the way that things cycle that Jewish people still live into. So when is Shabbat? After sundown right? When do festivals begin for Jews? It's always after sundown. It's evening and morning. It's not morning and evening. So we have those moments occasionally, like at Christmas and Easter. At Christmas, most people come Christmas Eve, not day. And although that is not we've had interesting shift. It used to be Christmas morning was bigger than Christmas Eve you know, a couple hundred years ago, and now it's flipped. Christmas Eve is way, way bigger than Christmas morning. Then Easter used to be the eve, not the morning, a couple hundred years ago. Then it flipped. Now most people come in the morning, not the evening. But in both cases, when we have these major festivals, the actual first moment that we celebrate Christmas or Easter is actually after sundown, kind of. We fudge it with Christmas. But after sundown in the evening, before the morning of the day. You know, we think of Christmas as the morning, but actually it begins the evening before. Same thing with Easter. First Eucharist of Easter is at the vigil, not the morning. So we have some of these echoes in the way that we do our rhythm, even if most of us think morning and evening. All right, questions or comments about day one? There's a lot here, so sorry, we're gonna plug ahead. Day two. God said a dome, verse six, God said a dome in the middle of the water to separate water from water and God made the dome and separated the water under the dome and the water above the dome. God called these heavens and there was evening and morning on the second day. God said the water under the heavens is to gather into one place so the dry land may appear so it came to be. Fast forward, verse 14, God said lights in the dome of the heavens to separate day and night and they will be for signs and occasions and days and years. And he called the two big lights, the bigger light to rule the day, the smaller light to rule the night and the stars. So we're gonna do days two, three, four, all at once. There is a very important idea here. God is separating the waters. That's all that's happening in these first few, separating the water and the light. There is a literal understanding of the world as having 
this sort of land and water and there being a physical dome like this over everything. Remember, the world's flat. So the earth is flat at this point. It will be for a while. And the, the earth exists right here, and God has created a physical dome. And below the dome, you've got water, and above the dome, you've got water. God has separated the waters. God will further separate water in just a minute. But on day two, God separates these, I'm sorry, on day, yes, day two. On day two, God separates these waters so that the water up here is held back until it needs to come down as rain. Why this is important to note here is when we get to the flood and God opens the heavens, they are literally understanding God peeling back this dome and all this water coming down onto the earth. No longer is God balancing out the water that's on the earth and the water that's in the heavens. God's letting it all come down. And we'll miss sort of the literal understanding of this water if we don't understand this moment of the dome. All right? Any questions about this? So the question is, if all the waters come down, how is it replenished from, for rain? Well, and God made it in the first place, so you can just make more. No, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a good question, and that is a great example of the kinds of questions that I want you asking as you read through this, because when we ask that kind of question, I think the deeper question we're asking is whether this is true or scientific, right? We sort of hinted at this last week. There is a distinction we should make to be thoughtful about the way that scripture tells stories. Scripture tells true stories. They're all true. But scripture does not tell scientific, historic stories. Not because these people couldn't, but because they don't care to. That isn't at all their point. They are, they are imparting a truth. They do not wonder how the water gets back up in the dome to rain later. That is not even the point. Because they're not looking to explain a scientific reality. They are looking to explain a divine truth. That is a big, massive idea. And that is how we differentiate literalism from interpretation, right? There are people who will read the Bible and need it to be right or wrong. And if it's wrong, it's all wrong, which means it all has to be right. And if it all has to be right, then everything in it is exactly accurate and right scientifically. That is not at all what anyone who wrote the Bible was intending. They did not care about science at all. They were just looking to explain how God relates to us in the world. That's it. 
that allows us to interpret the stories that they told, not because we aren't as faithful, but because we are actually considering their humanity and trying to follow in their footsteps to help us understand how God relates to us now. All right, any other questions? All right, so I kind of skipped over this, but ultimately God's going to separate the land from the water, and then God's going to establish the sun and the moon. This is a good moment. It gets back to the idea of how big is God and how good is God. I will, at the end of this class, talk about the Babylonian influences, but I'm going to hint at it real fast. The Jewish people are living in a land that they don't know with a whole mythology and understanding of the world that they don't hold. They are influenced by the culture, the Babylonian culture around them. And one of the ways in which the Babylonians understand the world is that the sun and the moon and the stars are all gods. And they're moving around us and they're doing stuff. And if they can figure out what the gods are doing, then perhaps they can figure out what's happening in the moment on earth and even predict what may happen in the future. This we know of as astrology. The Babylonians are the original astrologers. They, before anyone else that we know of, would study the sun, the moon, and the stars in order to determine what the gods are up to so they can understand what's happening now and what may happen in the future. When the Jewish people are there in Babylon, they are understand, they hear all this stuff from the Babylonians and they know that's not right. The sun and the moon and the stars, those aren't gods. There's just God. God created all of this stuff. And so they intentionally, when they tell their creation story, make sure to note that God created the sun and the moon and the stars. Can you imagine and the stars just being this flippant comment? They intend it to be this way. When you look out at the night sky, if you've ever been away from city lights and you can really see the stars, it is overwhelming how many there are. They probably saw even more because their atmosphere was clearer and cleaner and they had a natural light. So they're looking up there and it's gigantic. And so when they tell this story to emphasize the greatness of Yahweh, they say, Yahweh created the sun and the moon oh, and the stars. It really is meant to be almost a throwaway because that's how God does it. Poof, the stars. That's how great God is. All right, let's skip ahead. I'm running out of time. Day five and six. Day five and six brings all the cute stuff. So day five and six, we get sea animals and land animals. God blesses those animals, and you can look. Uh, 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 uh. Do you know what I got? I have one step ahead of myself. Go back just as a reference to verse 12, where God says, creates all of the plants on the land. 
It's important for us to note that God created all the plants because of verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants producing seed according to their species, and trees making fruit with their seed in them according to their species. If we are just casually reading Genesis, that seems like a very oddly specific thing to say, or something redundant. Yeah, of course plants have seeds, right? And fruit has seeds in them. It's important because if we jump down to day five and six, God blesses the sea creatures and the land animals in a very specific way. Look at verse 22. God blesses the sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind in the waters, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. Jump ahead and God says the same about the animals. It's important for us to understand that part of this blessing from God in this first chapter of Genesis is the capacity, the autonomy, and the responsibility to multiply. Plants, fruits and vegetables, fish, animals, and then ultimately people have a responsibility to multiply, yes, but they have the capacity to do so because God gave it to us. In a way, in a small way, what God is doing is giving over the power of creation in a specific way to the stuff that God created. That is a very profound idea. Something you can play with after class. We just don't, I have to not say certain things. And so that's an idea I'm not gonna unpack, but just consider how significant it is that we also, like God, in our own specific way, in our species and all that stuff, we get to create in a way that echoes God's creation. Jump ahead, day six. So the morning of day six, God creates all of the animals on the land. And in the afternoon of day six, God creates us. So let's look at verse 26. God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals and on and on. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We will start with who is the us. So I thought there was only one God, right? There, is, there are many ways to interpret this. It could be that this just slipped in and the writers just said us because God is in effect the king of the gods and it's sort of the royal we, right? King God, King Yahweh says to all of the other gods in the court, let us create humankind. Not because he's seeking their approval, but because he is king. And so he does whatever he wants, but we do it together. Kinda. That could be okay. Remember that even though the Jews had an idea of one Yahweh being best, they understood that other gods were around. And so 
God, in a sense, could be exhibiting his omnipotence by doing something on behalf of the entire heavenly body. We could interpret this as, well, you know, one thing we don't see in Genesis at all is the creation or the origin of angels. All of a sudden, angels just show up and start doing stuff, but we get nothing about them being created. So either they weren't created and in a sense are part of God in the beginning, or they just didn't feel like it was important to note that they were created. Either way, it is not too far-fetched because angels exist all throughout the Bible, beginning with Abraham, that, well, you get Nephilim, it's a, we'll talk about it. So, because angels exist, could it be that God is just speaking to what we would call the heavenly host? Maybe. It could also just be that it's linguistically messy. You know, Hebrew, you're not talking about people who have a literary specificity that we might uh, celebrate today, and they may have just said us when they really weren't intending to mean anything by it, and that's okay too. We get a similar royal we when we get to Job, right? The whole idea of Job, Job is this weird story where it begins with God is very proud of Job, and then you've got the evil one who says to God, well, he only likes you because you do all the good stuff for him. God said, no, he doesn't. He'd love me anyway, even if all the bad stuff happened. He said, I bet not. And God says, I bet he would. And then they basically, they gamble that Joel, Job is going to be faithful. And so God takes everything away and makes his life awful because he's made a bet with all of these other people. Like we are doing these things up in heaven. Who are these people? I go with angels. That's how I land on it. But you think whatever you want. Okay, so there's the us. Verse 27 is a triplet. So we've all studied poetry at some point. Verse 27 says the same thing, same thing three times in different ways. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is something critically important about this moment because they wrote it three times, differently each time. So let's parse this out just for a minute and we'll do more of this next week. So God created humankind. The word for humankind is Adam. What's that look like? The word for just humanity is Adam. That word comes from, in the second creation story, the word for dirt, Adamah. In Hebrew, there is an explicit connection between the dirt and humanity. In, ver in chapter two, what we will see is God will gather the dust and the dirt and breathe into it to create humanity. We don't see that in the first story, but we do see the same words used in both. So it's not too far afield to say that the understanding is similar, that what is actually happening here 
is that humanity is being created from the creation. Because part of what the big macro message is here in this creation story is the world belongs to us. We get that in both creation stories. And so it would make sense that we are formed of the earth. God creates, and then God's cherry on top is made up of the creation. And that's the implication here in the Hebrew language. Any questions about that? What you don't see here that you may be wondering is the rib stuff, right? That's not this one, that's the other one. So I hope that you are in your mind, or maybe even physically writing this down, what don't you see? We understand the, the mush and meld of stories, right? If I were to ask any of you to tell me the story of Jesus' birth, you're gonna tell me a story that includes details from both Matthew and Luke, and neither Matthew and Luke have the details of the other. So were there shepherds or were there kings? Yes, but not in both. And just like that, if I were to say, tell me the creation story, we would naturally tell a creation story that basically takes both stories and mushes them together. Let's do that for each other, but let's be intentional. Let's know the differences. Because I believe Matthew and Luke are telling the same story, they just use different details because they were interested in different things. Does that mean that really the shepherds weren't actually there and Luke made them up? No, I think Matthew left them out. And were the kings not really there? No, I think Luke left them out and on and on, right? You can only tell a certain amount of story. And these people are telling the creation stories in particular ways for particular ends. We do not see the Adam with the rib and the Eve. We'll get there next week, but this one does not have that. All right, questions about that before we move on to the final blessing? Oh, good, okay. Jump ahead to the last day. Chapter two, verse two. Why in the world would the first creation story end in the first few verses of chapter two? I don't know, but it does. So we are actually reading through the first few verses of chapter two. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested from all the work that he had done and God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done. Blessing the seventh day becomes a very unique Jewish idea. If you think back in the ancient world, honestly, if you think back into just Western civilization, there is no day off. You don't get a day break. That is a modern construct based on a very old Jewish idea. The Jews go to Babylon and they wanna work six days and rest a seventh day. The Babylonians are like, what the heck? I mean, you need to be doing work. And why would you waste one whole day? And so they are forced to continue working when they should be resting because the Babylonians think that the Jews have made this up. And so what do they do in their creation story? 
they make it perfectly clear that God rested on the seventh day and God wants us to rest on the seventh day as well. So that nobody can say they made this up. God ordained it. So I want to stop the technical Bible study with just a quick word on that rest idea. We tend to celebrate busyness, and although we like to vacation, we often make our vacations as busy or busier than our regular life, right? I mean, I certainly know, and this is maybe most true for people who are raising children at home, but I certainly know that going on vacation with my children is much harder than just normal life, right? And so we tend, even when we have a break, to make that break hard and busy and exhausting. The Jews knew way back when, and made it part of the creation story, that rest is important. So one of the things I'd love for you to just roll around in your mind is what rest means to you. Because although rest is not articulated here in a particular way, we have through most of our history interpreted this idea of Sabbath as not meaning doing nothing. Sabbath is when you do the thing that refreshes you. All right, that's a very different idea of rest. Rest should be recuperative. Rest is not just the absence of activity, but it's the moment when you do the thing that refills you. Do we actually do that? And if we don't, why not? Okay, so I have less than 10 minutes. I need to introduce an idea that may be new to some of you, maybe many of you. The stories that we get, particularly in this epic period of Genesis, these first 11 chapters, are stories that are influenced explicitly by stories from other cultures. I will say that in a different way. The Jewish people did not make these stories up. They have retold these stories specifically in order to communicate a, a particular message, but they are deeply inspired by stories that predate their identity and their culture. This is most clear in the creation and the flood. We will talk about this more specifically with the flood, but the Babylonians have their own creation story, and it is called the Enuma Elish. If you've never heard this, then I want you to maybe go Google it and read just a minute of it. E-N-U-M-A, Enuma, Elish, E-L-I-S-H-A. The Enuma Elish, sorry. Enuma Elish. Until the mid 19th century, Western culture believed that the Bible was the oldest written document. Then, Western European scholars and archaeologists went digging in Mesopotamia and they discovered 
the library of Ashurbanipal. So the library of Ashurbanipal has tens of thousands of documents, most of them are tablets, written in a language called Akkadian. And Akkadian is a, an older cousin of Hebrew. These, this library, although the library dates to the seventh century, the writings and the tablets and the stories are dated as far back as Hammurabi. So you have likely heard of Hammurabi and maybe you've heard of Hammurabi's code. Hammurabi was the leader of the Babylonian empire when the Babylonians became really powerful. As the Babylonians were really powerful in that phase of their life, Hammurabi began to define a code of ethics, a code of law, and wrote down a lot of their religious stories. One of those stories was a creation story. And that creation story, the Enuma Elish, has God, Marduk, is their God's name, creating the world in a series of days with the same things happening on each day that we see in the first chapter of Genesis. Yeah. In both stories, God creates either Marduk or Yahweh, and God creates order out of chaos. So we see the same thing happen in Genesis. There is nothing in a void and a swirl, and then God puts it in order. One of the big differences between the first and second creation stories in Genesis is that the first creation story was written by an accountant and the second creation story was written by someone like me. So the first creation story is totally ordered. God builds a building, right? A foundation, the walls, the roof, and then he puts the stuff inside. The, crea the second creation story, God's like pew, 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 pew. I mean, he's just throwing stuff out there and doing whatever out of order and it makes no sense. But they both communicate some kind of truth. This ordered creation story is just like the Babylonian creation story that predates the writing of Genesis by potentially a thousand years. That's meaningful. What I also want to say, so let's just note that. What I want to say is that I believe that Genesis is true. Even if the Jewish people in their exile are using a story that another group of people wrote, it does not mean that the story they wrote is untrue. As I noted earlier, the creation story is not science. The creation story is not history. The creation story is true. And the creation story is meant to help us understand how God has related to humanity and how we can relate to God. That's it. And the Jewish people took this story that the Babylonians had been using for centuries and made it better. So there is a, a kind of a literal thing happening here where the Jewish people are one-upping the Babylonians. But 
there's also a divine inspiration happening here where they found something true about the way in which the world was created, something that resonated with them about what they understood God to be. Because remember, at this point in the exile, they have received the commandments. God has saved them from Egypt. God has formed this great people. They are chosen. So they understand God, they know God, and they know God is real. And now they go to Babylon and they, under, they experience this story of creation that kind of makes sense. Like that seems to be true to what they understand about God, mostly, not all the way. And so they take the skeleton of that Babylonian story and they fill it out to be something that is more appropriate for the experience of Yahweh that they have had for centuries. That is what we receive in this first chapter of Genesis. I will stop and see if there are any our time is up, so rather than asking for questions, I want to encourage you to write any questions down that you have. Anything is fair game, and we will spend these weeks vetting and unpacking these ideas that we're all understanding things with as much depth as possible. Thank you all very much. I'll see you next week.